0: everyone welcome to the RUF at TCU podcast. RUF is a community on campus learning about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. For more information about and ways you can support RUF at TCU please visit ruf.org/tcu. If you were with us last week we took a look at Revelation chapter 5. What did we find there? Well John the writer said that there is a slain lamb at the very center of reality. One who has died, one who has risen, and one who has conquered death, evil, and sin. This lamb is none other than who John the Baptist saw when he said, Lord, the "Lamb of God, who takes the world," and that is Jesus Himself. And John here says that the Lamb takes a scroll in John in, a, in a Revelation chapter five, which we said last week contained the entire redemptive plan. Of God in history and it was sitting in his hand but we noticed something about that scroll or that it was sealed so it sealed with seven seals and that's what we're gonna take a look at tonight so that's where we are in this throne room scene but before we read tonight I want to ask a question perhaps to engage you a little bit think of a time when you were really wronged it might have been relationally maybe it was a boy or a girl Maybe it was financially, maybe somebody defrauded you. Maybe you were hurt physically somehow. The question I have is how did you make sense of this pain and sorrow? Did you or do you still wonder if at the end of the day that things might be put to right? You see, if you've ever worried or wondered about that and you've ever had that longing that in fact things would be made right, and I have the good news for you. Revelation chapter six is for us. So with that in mind, let's read it together. We're going to read Revelation chapter six, and then we'll read a few verses from chapter eight. Let's read this together. This is God's word to us. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four creatures, four living creatures, say with a voice like thunder, "Come!" The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And now from Revelation eight one, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven, for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, and another altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Well, amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this evening. Lord, you have made us and you know us. We ask tonight that you would help us to understand a very sobering text about the realities that we face every day. Lord, we ask that you would make our hearts soft so that we might be able to hear. And Lord, particularly tonight, would you be with the one who speaks, that I might speak truthfully and that I might speak confidently about things that are Admittedly, very hard to handle. So, Lord, would you come? Would you help us to see, above all else, how wonderful and how beautiful Jesus is for us? Help us to catch a glimpse of his glory, how merciful and how kind he really is. We pray that you would do this for his name's sake. Amen. None of you were alive, I would imagine, maybe one or two. Um, in the year 1979 where the country of Iran saw a hardline Islamic regime take root. Over the next 20 years or so, one author, Mark Howard, notes, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce and several pastors were killed the church came under tremendous pressure he writes from the macro to the individual in that same time period one story is told even recently of a woman i'm sure i'm going to mess her name up but fatima i think is her name at a late age 11 this is an iranian girl at a ra- age 11 her parents sold her reed trafficked her to a drug addict in her land who abused her and divorced her when she was 17 years old. Amazingly, she returned home only to be, as sad as this may sound, sexually assaulted by her own family until she left again. This time on the streets of Iran, somehow she heard the gospel and she trusted Jesus. Later, she would marry a Christian man. And when the two of them were receiving training on evangelism, and church planting, they had a strong desire to return home to her family to witness to them about the mercy of God found in Jesus. And do you know what her family did to her when they heard her? They embraced her. Why? Because they had embraced Jesus. And that family planted the first church in her town. Here is the point Many sociologists and historians thought that the persecution in Iran was so intense and so severe that it would wipe out Christianity in that country. Now, some 40 years later, the place where the church is growing the fastest in the world to this very day, you guessed it, is in Iran. My question tonight is real simple. What happened to Iran, Fatima? and many others like her. Was that God's plan all along? Was it some sort of plan B out there? You see, when we look at injustices like this, it is natural and right to say, this is wrong, and it makes no sense. And perhaps you have those things in your very life, where you look at your, I know I have them in mine, And we look at them and we conclude every single one of us knows what it's like to have injustice committed against us and wonder if it will ever be made right. And here, here is the question that Revelation chapter 6 is going to show us tonight. That God, that His good and sovereign hand is governing against all odds and against all appearances, is governing every last event, painful though as it may be, for the good of His people and the glory of His name. As one pastor put it, God is using all, every last one of them, every last event of history for the vindication of His people and for the judgment of His enemies. And the question tonight that Revelation chapter 6 asks us is how does He do that? How does He do it? Two simple points tonight. Our text is going to show us in two ways. Two ways that God governs, that God controls things, and this is touching on the issue of suffering, on the question of justice, on the question of injustice, and our two main points tonight are this. We see how God executes justice, and we see how God executes mercy. Let's take a look. First, the idea or the topic of God executing justice. So where do we see God executing his control of the cosmos in these seven seals, especially as it relates to his justice. Well, take a look there at those first four seals. Did you notice it? When each seal is broken, one of the four living creatures that we learned about a couple of chapters ago says, come, and this summons four horses and four riders. You've likely heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Voila, here they are. Each of them is, quote, given or permitted authority to bring four things on the earth. The first is conquest. The second, war. The third, famine or economic disparity. And the fourth is death itself. Now these writers have as their background, if you'll remember, John is notorious for crafting his his story with the imagery of the Old Testament. And if you were to go to Zechariah chapter 6, that second to last book of the Old Testament, You would see these very four images appearing. And so we're not surprised when John draws on those images. The point is, you have to understand, is this, is that when is this happening? Now, some people believe that this happens at the end of history. But John is actually saying that this is happening right now. And there will be more for sure as time comes to a close. We're going to look at that in a moment as he breaks, as Jesus breaks the sixth seal. This is happening right now, ever since Christ died, rose, and ascended to the Father, and it will continue until He returns. But here might be the more important question. What is this? And it's here that I want you to see something. Did you notice it? These writers, we were told in verses 2, 4, and 8, that they were given authority. Given? Yes. Well, it begs the question, by whom is authority given to them to go out and do this on the earth. As hard as this is for me to say in the stomach, I must let the Scriptures speak where they speak, y'all. The text is saying that God Himself has given them this authority to destroy and to wreak havoc on the earth. In other words, God doesn't just merely permit this to happen, but that He stands behind these horsemen as their authority. And the questions left with us. Why? Why would God judge? Why would he bring ruin like this? Let me illustrate for a moment to see if I can drive it home before I answer the question. I can remember when one of our twins was in kindergarten last year and they came home and they told us about something that one of the boys in the class had done to them. Now, I have daughters, so one of the boys that they had done to them now, she was all torn up and sad and hurting about it. And let me tell you something. The papa bear in me was ready to go toe-to-toe with that five-year-old. I can tell you that. Okay? Now, Laura, my wife, gently uh, pulled me out of the ring by saying this, Ryan, he just stepped on the back of her shoe and her foot came out. <laughs> so, details, y'all. I don't really, you know, don't, don't, get, don't, don't let that uh, bog down a good story. But, all joking aside... I think you can see my point, can't you? You know what this is like in your own life. My love for my daughter is what demanded that justice be had. Let me say that again. My love for my daughter is precisely what demanded that justice be had. In fact, not to seek it, not to demand it, would actually be what? Unloving. It would mean that she was wronged, and I stood by. And did absolutely nothing. And don't you know this to be true, by the way, that all good justice initiatives are rooted in this concept, that justice and love are inseparable. And when God himself looks on the suffering of the people whom he loves, his beloved people, he intervenes to protect them. He will put everything to right. Now, on the one hand, this is hard to stomach, isn't it? Because it's judgment. You see, each of these seals, as it, as it is being broken, God sends out judgment upon his enemies. Those who in the end are opposed to him and his people. Notice that sixth seal, how it shows up too. Did you catch it? At the end of time, that one seal begins to bring the mark of the last the last and final days, as it were. We see those opposed to Christ's rule. Look there at verse at the sixth seal there, and I believe it's in verse 11. Verse 12, it says, I opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. These images from the Old Testament about creation itself dissolving, going being uncreated, as it were. And did you notice what happened? Those, the kings, the powerful ones, those set against God, begin to call out to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. Literally squish us. Crush us. Soberingly, they are pictured as crying out, not to God, but to the mountains and to the rocks, to fall on them so that they may die and might not have to face, quote, the face of Him who is seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. So it's on that one hand, it's hard to stomach But on the other hand, I want to show you something tonight. That this is meant to be profoundly comforting. How? Don't you remember our original audience? John is writing to Christians who are suffering. Who are being persecuted. Who are watching perhaps their family members die because of their Christian profession. And John is writing to them to show them to peel back, as it were, to pull back the curtain, to lift the top off the pot and say, this is what is going on. He tells us that suffering is not pointless. He says that evil itself does not fall outside of God's good and sovereign rule, that God has control over it and He has it on a leash, and God does not waste our suffering, but uses it to make us more and more like Christ, who was, after all, for those that follow Him, the chief sufferer. And for people who are suffering in Christ, to know that there is a God, to know that there is one who is overseeing their suffering, gives meaning to it, because God is doing something for His glory and for our good. And it is far better, listen to me, it is far better to see this than the alternative to see nothing behind it, And to know that it's utterly, therefore, pointless and meaningless. You see, which is better? Which is better? Listen to what Elizabeth Elliot, how she answers it. Her words are up on the screen. Where does this idea of a loving God come from? It is not a deduction. It is not man so desperately wanting a God that he manufactures him in his mind. It's he who was the Word before the foundation of the world. Suffering as a lamb. There's Revelation 5. And he has a lot up his sleeve that you and I haven't the slightest idea about. He's told us enough so we can know that suffering is never for nothing. Now, the idea of a God who punishes sin is something that our modern cultural moment has a problem with. We want what? A God of love. That's what everybody wants but not a God who judges. And in the end, I hope you'll see why this is problematic. As we saw above, love and justice go together. Real love protects those it loves. It doesn't let harm come to the beloved in the end. And you see, in the end, as a result, you can't have a God of love without a God who judges real wrongs. You see, those of us who are skeptical of a God who judges, may I ask this question? What do we, what do you want a God who deals with our wrongs against Him and against another without the judgment of those wrongs falling on us? Is that what we want? Well, friends, I put before you a way. I put before you the best news you'll ever hear. I put before you Jesus. For in Him and because of Him, we are offered mercy instead of judgment. And this is precisely why the Lamb from Revelation 5 was slain. That judgment would fall on him instead of us, and that we would receive mercy. So, yes, this is a text about real judgment, about real judgment, about real wrongs being punished as they're carried out, as they're being carried out of God's control over all things. And all wrongs will be met with punishment. But what if I told you that John sees a way for that judgment to not fall on the people who rebel against God? And it's here in the text too. Maybe you didn't catch it when we first read it, but I'd like to show you where. Let's take a look secondly at God's executing of His mercy. Take a look with me at verses 9 through 11. Let's just look at those again. When He, Jesus, opened the fifth seal... I, John, saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God. This is the fifth seal being broken. This time there are no judgments. Rather, there is a picture of those who have been slain for the Word of God and for the witness, the testimony that they had borne. They are martyrs, specifically. But this symbolizes all who have died in Christ and who have been His faithful witnesses. They are crying out these words, How long? How long, O Lord? How long until you will judge and avenge us? And in response, you know what they're told? Wait. Wait. Why? For there are yet more to come who must die. And then and only then will the final judgment come. And then when you go over to chapter 8, verse 1 through 5, we read of that seventh seal being broken. And what happens then? First, there is silence. The roar of worship that John has been witnessing is drowned out. It's drowned out for silence. For about a half an hour, the text tells us. Why? It's in awe. Because God has heard His people's cries and is about to respond. Now think about that. Think about that. The God has are in Him. against you i don't know what that is and what your story is like but god hears us and the seventh seal is telling us that god will respond to the prayers that have gone up and he will come as with eugene peterson says with reversed thunder back down to the earth to bring about judgment what is this telling us it's telling us a couple of things It's telling us that it is okay for you as a Christian to long for things to be put right. For you to look at the real injustices done against you and to cry out, How long, O Lord, will it be until you avenge those who have done wrong against me? And that ought to liberate some of you who have carried that with you for years. The cry of the saints goes up, but it doesn't just go up. Notice what happens. He hears their cry. Why? Because of mercy. Not only that, he hears their prayers because of mercy. And that means that he hears our cries and our prayers all because of mercy. And then he acts and puts to right all that is wrong. Why? Because of mercy. You do know that the rest of the book of Revelation will actually be demonstrating how God is actually effecting, bringing to pass all of of those things that have been wronged against Him and His people. He is putting them to right, and one day they will be done forever. And all that will be left will be a renewed, glorious new heavens and new earth for us to dwell seeing the face-to-face of God once more. The question is, what makes those under the altar so worthy of receiving this sort of mercy and grace? I mean, they aren't going to suffer what the, rest of the, um, what the rest puts forth as God judges His enemies. So what made them so worthy? And here's the answer, nothing. Nothing. Nothing made them worthy. That's the best news, y'all. That all you need is Nothing. That they didn't do nothing except what? Let me explain. Those under the altar were given a white robe. Verse 611. Look there. They, then they were given each a white robe and told to rest a little longer. And moreover, they were made white. And we didn't read this chapter because there's an interlude between chapter 6 and 8 that talks about that talks about how God. Um, how God is redeeming and rescuing His people. There's there's an interlude of grace there in chapter 7. We didn't read it, but it tells us if you have your Bible, you can read it in verse 7.14. I'll read it for you here. It reads as follows. It reads, I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said this, These, the ones with the white robes, are those coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. White is a symbol for purity, as you well know by now, for forgiveness, for sins being cleansed. How so? They were washed, of course. But in what? What were they washed in? In the blood of the Lamb. It wasn't, you see, their faithfulness, even under martyrdom, that got them mercy. It was the blood of the Lamb that made their robes white. It is mercy. It is mercy that gets them mercy. And you know what? It is mercy that gets you mercy. You see, here's a couple of things. One, God hears the cries of his people and he will act on them. Your suffering, like those in the first century, has not escaped the compassionate eye and heart of our God. He hears, he knows. Every tear, the psalmist says, every last one of them, stored up in his bottle. And He will vindicate those tears. He will make everything right. So when the cancer comes, when the injustice causes you to be taken advantage of, when governments are corrupt, when family abandons you, when physical harms come, when abuse happens to you, when you stand for Jesus and people bail. And you should find yourself under the altar, having died because you have borne witness, perhaps, to the end of your faithful Savior. God, in His mercy, sees it all and will one day vindicate it, which means to make it right. Maybe in this life, but for sure in the resurrection. And this encourages us to keep on praying keep on praying especially in the face of injustice because God most certainly hears but secondly this also prompts us to keep on bearing witness when we suffer for Christ the watching world takes note think back with me at the beginning of the sermon those Iranian Christians who had suffered immensely their suffering is what had led others to know Christ the church father Tertullian was right that the blood of the Christians is the seed of the church But I want you to see, I want you to see something, y'all. I want you to see that happens tonight, even right here at TCU. Several several have courageously loved someone here. Many of you are here tonight because others have sacrificed their time, their money, and their reputation so that you might know Jesus more. Press more and more into this. The apostle Peter notes it is the character of our lives. That is going to draw people to Christ. And you can do that in conversation over coffee, with an invitation to church. Your deeds of kindness and the quality of your lives, matched with your words, will draw others into this wonderful story of God's mercy. In short, when mercy comes to us, you know what it does? It always runs right through us. And I just want to press in on you keep going, keep bearing witness. Keep loving well. That's what Revelation 6 is telling us. Jesus blesses us with his own words of mercy in the Sermon on the Mount where he says this, Blessed, blessed, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In closing, my point tonight was simple. The Lamb is on the throne. He's opening the seven complete seals which enact God's plan to show mercy to those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and to bring justice to those who haven't. It is in this way that God's justice is good news. And if you've ever been the recipient of wrongdoing, then in your bones you know it. You know what's good news to know that no injustice will ever go unnoticed and ever unaccounted for. But, and this is where you need to listen, there is a problem that I've not touched on yet all night long that I've waited for the end to talk about. Justice for those out there seems great. Mercy for those, for the others, sounds pretty good too. And mercy for me certainly sounds good. But if God knows every injustice and must punish it, what about me? What about you? What makes me think that the injustices that I've done will escape his eye? And you know what? They won't. So how can God's justice be good news for us in this way? And it's here where we see the tension between God's justice and His mercy being resolved. What tension? Well, if God is just, all sin must be punished. That means mine and yours. What judge is considered just if he just lets guilty people go free? And sin, all sin, deserves death. But if God is loving and merciful, He must preserve His people. If God doesn't punish sin, His justice is done away with. If God doesn't preserve His people, His love is. And how is this resolved? It's the Lamb. The Lamb at the center of everything. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. I was talking with a student within the last week about this very thing, and we were talking about the Lamb in chapter 5 who was slain. Why was He slain? Why? On the cross. Here it is. Listen to me. God's judgment for our sin was poured out Not on us. But justice was paid. And on the cross, it is not us who receive it. God Himself does in Jesus. It was the news of Jesus receiving all of God's wrath. His settled anger against sin that warmed her heart and that warms mine tonight. And perhaps it warms yours because she saw Him doing it for her for her. And so do you see God's justice working for you on the cross tonight? Verse 6:17 says this, who can stand? Who can stand the wrath of who? The lamb. Most of us don't think of Jesus being wrathful. He is. Who can stand before his wrath? And here it is. Answer all those who have been washed in his blood. And on the last day, do you know what will happen? We will stand. We will stand. And his face will in no way be terror anymore, but the consummate expression of joy that we've always longed for. So, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would take this very difficult, sobering passage and that you would make it sweet to our ears. That we would love the fact of your justice. Because you are a God who punished the sin. And you make all things right. And every single one of us, O oh Lord, stands without hope in this world if we look not to the blood of the Lamb. So help us to do that tonight, we pray. And O oh Lord, having looked and having had our robes washed white in the blood of the lamb, may we see there is no more justice left, that all has been paid by our kind and generous, our kind and generous Lord. May it get in our hearts, O oh Lord. May you transform us, that we might love you more, that we might worship you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.